All right, we're back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. I'm Ollie. And I'm Scott. Do we and, have to and this say is welcome back each week. Like it, I guess we do. I guess we do. And and the cool thing is, welcome. it. I think if you're listening to this right now, uh, you should open up uh, an adult beverage because it is episode 21. Oh, uh, science in between. It, I know it is uh, officially legally able to uh, drink <laughs> adult beverages. What we should have done if we had thought in advance about this, because we didn't, is we should have we should have had at the beginning of the of the show like a little bingo card drinking game thing where oh. it's like oh if we say esoteric then you take a drink Ooh, or if you right you know if if scott makes up a word then you take <laughs> wow. you take a drink gosh I mean, we, that, we could kill on this yes it, it, it's brilliant that is some fine ideas it could we could put it in the show notes you know there you go. Download. Or, or we could or we could do it in episode 42 which would be twice 21 Oof. and so it'd be like yeah, I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm just, I'm just. You you're, know. you're, you're a thinker. That's who you are. That's I'm what shucking and jiving with you. Right, right. So, uh, if you're uh, reading along with us, this is uh, chapter five in chapter five. Uh, chapter five in Science in the City uh, by Brian Brown, and you know this is our our weekly take on a different uh, chapter in the book, and we're you know hoping you're joining us with this podcast book club thing that we're doing. Yep. And, and I I really enjoyed chapter five. I have to you, say, I, I just have to say, Ollie, you really enjoy every chapter. I do. I think, I think you've said that for every chapter. I think you said I really. I think this was a great chapter, and I don't disagree with you. I just I like that you lead with that. Well, I I think that there's a a lot to enjoy about this whole book, and I think that that the way it's presented is really digestible, and it's uh there's so many applications that you, you can take from it. And it is that balance. And he does this and not a lot of writers can do this is mix, you know, everyday life. Right. So you're getting something about, you know, about his life, right. He's doing this or he's, he's in his car or he's, you know, playing with his kids or something. And then he has this, you know, thought in his head and then he takes that and he transitions it into, Hey, here's how it applies to teaching and how here's how it applies to learning. And then he brings in research with it. And it's like the perfect way to lay it out for a reader who is going to go into it and say, you know what, this is, this is good stuff. And this is how it relates to my life. This is how it relates to my, my career, my teaching job. And then also, Hey, here's some research to make it, you know, really sound, make it like grounded in, and evidence-based. And, and I think that's just a great way of presenting it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, our, I think we're going to call him our good friend now because he's clearly our good friend, whether he knows it or not, Brian Brown, our good friend yeah. at, at Stanford. Um, <clears throat> he, um, yeah, I mean, I agree. He, he, and, and of course, you know, you would expect it on some level cause this is what he thinks about, right. Sure. Is he thinks about this, this blending and, and, um, interaction between everyday language and the fancier sort of sciencey terminological language that, that we use to, you know, that's the normative scientific language. So, so he's already got, you know, the way he orients himself towards the world is that there are these layers that interact with each other. So I, I, he needs to be able to talk or I, Brian Brown says, I need to be able to talk across these layers. I need to be able to talk in ordinary language and I need to be able to ramp it up and talk about uh, things from a more sort of, you know, 
science-based, well, in this yep. case, edu educational research-based sort of technical language and link those two as I'm doing it. And he, yeah, I agree. He's really good at that. And, and he does have these little um, narratives that he plops in. Um, maybe that, that, that's not a nice way to describe it, <laughs> right. but, but he has these little narratives that, that always sort of kick off the chapter or an integral part of the chapter. Sure. Um, and, and this one was about him uh, listening to the radio on, on his commute. Right. And, and listening to a commercial for verbal advantage and how we get judged by the language we use right. and that uh, it was a commercial to really sell a product. Um, but more than that, it exemplified to him that we're all, you know, the words we choose, the words we use um, says to the, the listener certain things. Right. And then he kind of flips it on its head, right? He's just like, well, if if language plays a, a role in, in how people are judged and how people, and then he, he talks about some, you know, some researchers and things that um, he values. Um, but then he kind of flips that on its head and, and talks about how that may impact students when they come into our classes and that the language that we use may not be connecting to them, but more so may be actually like, in, in some ways disenfranchising them or creating stress for them or like shutting them out of the learning process because they don't have the access to the class or the content. And, and so it kind of really builds on uh, some of the, uh, the earlier chapters in a really nice way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think fundamentally this chapter is about the idea that um, the way we talk is linked to our identity in powerful ways. Yeah. And, and it's also linked to identities that um, we are being asked or in some cases aspire to take on, right? So when you're in a science class, you're asked to take on a certain identity. And, and this is his point. And the way that we ask students to do that is by asking them to talk differently and to, to um, describe things using this technical language of science. And, and his point being that when we do that, it's not as simple as just asking people to talk in a different language. We're asking them to change their identity or at least to adopt a different identity right. in that context. And, and when we think of it that way, it, it makes us take a step back and really recognize what we're asking, right? Especially for kids whose identity is further from the typical, you know, um, white middle-class identity yeah. that is the, that is the, you know, quote unquote norm that our schools are, are organized around. So I think, I think that's, that's really a powerful thing to recognize how much we're really asking of, of students when they come into a science classroom. Yeah. He throws out this, this, this concept, the language identity dilemma. Mm -hmm. And, and that's sort of like sets the stage for the work in this, this chapter. The lid, as we say. <laughs> I don't, is it the lid? I think it's just <laughs> making up acronyms. Well, you did that last time, didn't you? Didn't you make up the acronym? I don't, I don't recall that. I don't uh, recall that. I think I, I do. <laughs> I recall that. That could be on the bingo card. Ollie right. makes up an acronym. <laughs> um, well, you're the one who did it this time, my friend. No, I, I, but I did it in a sort of ironical sort of way to, you know, <laughs> poke you. Lid. Oop. So, so this lid, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were discussing no, no, go, the go language ahead. identity dilemma. No, no go no. ahead. Well, no, he, he, he talks about how, you know, the, the language you use is so 
connected to our identities and that um, the way he presents it is, you know, it's the idea that learning to master the language of an academic discipline, particularly science, presents a twofold challenge for students, a cognitive dilemma and an affective dilemma, too. So it's the, you know, the thinking and the feeling aspects that are, are, are really critical there. And that's the and I think he spends a lot of time you know, not just separating them, but talking about how interrelated they are, right? Mm-hmm. That the affective absolutely connects to the cognitive. Like they're, they're, we can't just address the one without addressing the other. And I think that, you know, this is something that um, I think needs a, a lot more attention, not just in mm-hmm. terms of our language, but in terms of so much of the stuff that we do, especially in this in-between world that we're working in, is that we, you know, we're throwing content online and saying, okay, let's address the cognitive stuff, you know, just making sure that we have good content out there with, with, without really affecting uh, thinking about the uh, affective stuff at all, right? And, or maybe not attending to it as much as we should. So I think that's a really good thing in this chapter is to talk about how these two aspects are so closely linked. The yeah. cognitive and the a- affective are so closely linked and interrelated, yeah. And, and this is so, so what he's been doing is sort of setting up these like dichotomies, right. For us to think with. So the first one was the, the di- differentiating, you know, his disaggregated pedagogy where he's taking yeah. apart the conceptual and the linguistic to say like, okay, there's this conceptual thing. And then there's a language used to describe it. So he maps out this, this dichotomy. And now he's mapping out, as you say, this other one, which, which is about language and affect or, or um, the cognition and affect. So he's, he's, he's helping us, you know, walk through this and think about these things as, um, as you say, interacting entities that are that, but they're dichotomies or they're right. dialectics or whatever. They're wow. connected to each other in that. Yeah. See, um, and, uh, and they, that- they, they are in tension with each other. They, they, um, they, but they help us think they're tools. Sure. So, um, and, and I think that's, you know, I think that's really nice. I mean, I, I really liked, um, I really liked his thing, which I, I have to admit, I did not know anything about on page 84, where he talks about the Crips and the Bloods and how they used. Oh yeah. Like they, they used, I didn't know that either. Yeah. So they take like a C word, like cup, if you're a blood and instead of saying cup, you say bup because you don't want to say C cause that's how, and so this right. is how you indicate that you're part of this gang. And, um, and one of the things that made me think of that I thought was really interesting, um, well, two things. One was the Cockney rhyming language. So this this is sort of I don't know if you're familiar with this, but no. the, um, so in England there's this pattern where um, there's uh, um, a Cockney, which is a part. It's like a it's like an accent. I don't think it's actually a region, but it's like an accent. And what they do is they replace words with with words or phrases that rhyme with them. And so it's the and I interestingly always thought it was wordplay um, that they were sort of doing it as they go. But apparently it's not because I looked it up after reading this chapter and um, and uh, and thinking of that. And and there are like sort of standard replacements. Um, so they have. Um, I'll, well, I'll dig some up so I I, I don't want to get them wrong, but. Um, but so they, yeah, exactly. So, but, but what it made me think about is that these, there are these things that we do when we talk that identify us as this is the identity piece, identify right. us as a part of a certain community. And often now with the example that he chose, this is obviously a very intentional one, right? Like sure. trips and bloods, but, 
but the ones that we're talking about are much less intentional, but it doesn't mean we don't do them. It's just that we're much less aware of them. It's much more the fish and water problem where it's like, we just do these things and we don't recognize that by doing them, we are identifying ourselves and also, um, you know, uh, identifying the others too. Right. Yeah. And, and if you're not part of the community, then you don't understand it, that you don't understand. And, and you're also marked as an outsider. And, and that's, I think he, he picks these, the, this, this example with the Crips and the Bloods, because I don't know how many readers would be as accustomed to it as he is. Um, And so that was surprising to me and it was surprising to you. Um, And I think that helps us, you know, experience the outsider, right? To experience mm-hmm. what it's like to be outside of that discourse community, which I think is a really powerful way to set up this chapter because he's like, hey, if you feel like this, like you don't get this, you don't get the, you know, the C and the B and how they're replacing these because, yeah. you know, th- to identify to others that they're part of this group, then just think about what your students are thinking or feeling when they're, you know, they're the outsider, when you're using language that they have no idea what it means. And then you're trying to teach them stuff too, using the language that they don't understand. So you're communicating to them that they're the outsider, just like we are feeling, you know, as we're trying to understand the, the Crips and the Bloods. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, and, and on page um, 86, he has this sentence that I marked there, which is, like the idea that language interactions include moments that send the message, quote, you do not belong, unquote, is well-researched in sociolinguistics, right? Agar, 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 I don't know, describes these unique language moments as rich points, instances in conversation where the subtle cues of talk send you a message that you are not a member of the language culture of the people you are communicating with. And I think that, you know, that is exactly it. Like this is, and, and what we do as science teachers and how often we we are communicating that to our students, right? That you are not a member of this language culture. You are an outsider. Um, and how powerful and how and powerful, not in a good way that can, that can be um, and how powerful it can be if we recognize it and fight against it actively and, and make different choices. And I think that what he does is he tries to lead you into that. Uh, like, okay, if you're an outsider or if someone is an outsider, that, that creates stress for them. That creates stress or impacts their the affective domain, which in turn will impact the cognitive domain. So he's like, well, it you know they'll feel like outsiders. They'll be stressed. They'll you know, and then in turn won't be able to learn as effectively. And that's where he you know sets out this. Um, he sets out a bunch of different research you know things, different research studies that were done. Um, mainly around like presenting different images of, 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 you know, I think they, one was they were using coloring pages with students um, and, and how that impacted their success in like math problems and so on. Um, which I think was, was a really great way to try to transition into the stress test that he talks about, which was it the Stroop and the flanker. Is that how flanker? Yeah. Stroop Stroop and flanker. flanker. That's the name of our new vineyard. Yes. Or brewery uh, or beer or something. Or or mustard. Maybe it's a mustard. Oh, oh the Stroop and Flanker mustard. Mm, no, right. uh, maybe not. You I, know? Know. I mean, I like mustard. I don't know if I like mustard enough to name something after. Sure. Yeah, I, I was just going with the flow, you know, Were throwing you, out ideas. Your own, your own little flow that right. didn't really include me. It was just a mustard related flow. Mustard. Really right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, well, this, so what, what this, what these, what these two assessments are is um, 
normally what what these assessments do is if uh, if someone's um, they're looking for patterns, right? They're to identify patterns. And when people are in like sort of an um, you know a relaxed state, they usually can do this pretty well. It's like they see a color and the name of the color, and they're to look whenever the things don't match. Like if the name of the color isn't then actually written in the color that it is, or opposite, right? So orange isn't in orange or green isn't in green. And then the other, I think that might be the flanker. And then the stroop is the one where they're looking at arrows and they're trying to find arrows that are misaligned or something. And yeah, so I think it's the other way, but that's, I mean, it doesn't matter stroop and flanker, right. but, but yeah. So the idea is that there's some sort of dissonance in the thing that you're looking at. So either, you know, like Ali was saying, you get a word like red but it's in the color green, the typeface yep. is green. And you have to say what color is the, is the word in front of you? Not, not read the word, but tell me what color it is. And as, as you get under stress, um, you do that slower. You can't right. do it as quickly. Your, your, your response rate. Cause he, he was talking about um, trying to figure out if, if students were under stress when they were asked in classrooms to sort of use this, um, you know, language that was outside of the norm for them. And, you know, he was, his friends at Stanford, his colleagues in psychology were saying, oh, well, you could do a cortisol check where you, you know, give, get, you do a spit test basically. And he's like, that's not going to work for, you know, normal classroom. So, uh, so he, ha he's using these tests as a way to measure the stress that kids have when they're engaged in, in science learning. And so he sets up this, you know, a, um, experimental study, right? He has, you know, a control group and then he has an experimental group and the control group is, you know, Hey, we're going to teach this scientific concepts the way we typically would teach scientific concepts and, you know, using the language and teaching it in, you know, using the language that science, science teachers would normally use. And then in the other, uh, teaching the concepts using more everyday language, more uh, using language that students would be more accustomed to. So the, the premise is that if they did these two modules, like the control group would experience more stress and then would do more poorly on these two assessments. Um, and that's exactly what they found is that it's uh, the, the students who were going through the being taught the language and the science at the same time um, we're much slower and at at responding to these, you know, to assessments. We're at showing that they were under stress, and really showing the connection between the uh, cognitive stuff and the affective stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things I liked about this, um, you know, then he talks about the implications for teaching, is he doesn't explicitly, even though it's clearly present both in the examples um, and in the way that I think he thinks about these things. Um, he doesn't explicitly talk about it in terms of race, um, but there there's clearly a component of that here. Um, and and I think he but what he what that does is it it presses on the idea that really this is something that's good for all students, right? Yeah. So this isn't about, okay, well, this is gonna help the black kids in class and therefore we got to do that for them. It's like, no, this is a thing that is productive and helpful for all children because lowering their stress level when they're learning means that they're better able to learn. Um, and so, so what he's, what he's arguing for here is that doing, you know, using these approaches where you're forcing them um, to, to, you know, do this multiple tasks basically at the same time of both learning the concept and learning the language um, has a big impact 
on students' ability to perform and stresses them out, frankly, right? Um, and I think we all know this too, when you talk to kids about the classes that stress them out most in high school or in college, invariably, um, it's a science class or a math class, math class right? right? Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, well, you and I are physics, right? And it right. like you and I as former physics teachers, you know, that's, that's one of the, uh, you know, you're at a cocktail party and you say, oh, well, you know, I'm a, yeah. I, I used to teach physics and it's, you always get that, right? The horror stories, physics. right? Mm-hmm. I hated physics. That was the worst class. And, and I think that most, most oftentimes it's because people felt like they were outsiders, right? And that they were using, you know, these, you know, I mean, we do it, right? We can talk momentum. We could talk, you know, like, Oh, we could just go off on all types of all, all you know, kind of well, yeah, angular craziness. momentum, yeah, right. whatever. We can yes. talk about all that, but centripetal force, right? Right? Not not the no, other one, not no, the F uh, word, not centrifugal no, force, my friend. No. no, right there, some somebody is going. Okay, I'm shutting off this podcast right. now. Right there, we, yeah. we just we just triggered some folks with that. Yes, they they are going. Oh my gosh, physics, and they're and we're I did hate the, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that, so at the end, this is 94. And I think this, I kind of, uh, uh, captures what, yeah. what the important things is. And this is the, he says they can learn, but they have to turn the music down. And I love that. They have to yeah. turn the music down. And that's yeah. what we're doing, right. Is we're creating music as a, just not, not really music, but we're, we're creating this, I, well, I think you called it cognitive conflict, a right. cognitive conflict for students. Uh, what is clear from this study is that we teach students without paying close attention to the language of instruction, we are creating an additional barrier. We are mm-hmm. creating a verbal disadvantage. And, right. and that's, I think, where he you know, takes it full circle back to the beginning yeah. with this verbal advantage piece at the beginning of the chapter. And it's like, yeah, drops mic, you know, yeah. drops, drops mic emoji. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. So the so the um and and just to clarify that, so so the turning down the music thing was just talking about the idea that when you're, you know, if you're listening to music and he was saying like you get in a more stressful situation, say when you're driving, um yes, that's or if right. you have to park your car or whatever and you suddenly you're having to parallel park, you'll turn down the music because you really have to concentrate. And so his point is like what we're doing to kids when we do all this simultaneously is we've, we've got the music up and we're not letting them turn the music down so they can really concentrate on the things they need to. And so it, it distracts them and makes it difficult for them to learn. So, um, you know, and one of the things I thought about in that, in this section, 94, 95 in particular for me was, um, wondering, cause I, I, I tend to always do this as I think about what are the analogies between teaching science and teaching science teaching or teaching graduate students or whatever. And so I was wondering, you know, about the, the way that I can start thinking about, or if I do disaggregating, um, the concepts of teaching or of graduate work or of, of educational research from the technical vocabulary. So do I let do I let students, my students, pre-service teachers or uh, teacher candidates, and also graduate students, do I help them talk through in ordinary language these ideas and then put the labels on? Or do I do the same thing that a science teacher does and say, okay, you know, today we're going to talk about situated learning and you're going to read an article about situated learning and then we're going to talk about situated learning, but I'm not really going to let them unpack that using their own language. Now, I like to think that I do that, that I try to do that, but I, but it makes me wonder, right. When I read this, like how conscious, how self-consciously am I doing that with teachers and with graduate students 
Cause I know I do. I know, I think I think about that with science, but I'm not sure I do it in, in the other half of my world, but I, maybe I just, maybe I'd do it better than I think, or maybe I do it worse than I think, but I'm not thinking about it as much as I should. I think. Well, I'll say, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, I was a, uh, a grad student. I mean, I guess, you know, yeah. thir- 13 years ago, 14 years ago now, but I, I do remember there were times where, you know, depending on what we read or what I read in the class, there were times where I was just like, okay, this is really dense stuff. Mm -hmm. And it required a lot of effort for me to get through it. Like I'm thinking like Freire, like some really dense stuff like that. And uh, some of the uh, qualitative classes that I I took some really like out there stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Van Manen and, you know, just, you know, when like phenomenology, for instance, that's like some really far out stuff mm. and that like bridges, you know, philosophical and methodological. And, and so there were times where I, I absolutely felt like an outsider reading that and saying, and there was, you know, I wouldn't say stress, but there was, it, it required a lot of concentration and effort for me to be able to like digest that stuff. Now, um, and there were times when I was like, you know, confronted with like, okay, am I part of this community, right? Am I really becoming part of this community? And, and I would say that's, I probably was thinking about that, you know, maybe not consciously, um, but I was definitely experiencing it. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, this probably applies in all of our settings, right? This, this sort of like, you know, disaggregating, you know, the language, from the, the the concepts uh and teaching the concepts and then teaching the language that applies i think is is probably a pretty useful tool not just for talking about students marginalized students or students in um you know certain settings but across any setting right that there's mm-hmm. this is probably something that applies um because you never know when somebody is going to experience being an outsider right we don't know that right, right. we don't know when they're going to feel the stress of, I don't understand the language that's being used here um, because we don't know everyone's background, right? We just mm-hmm. can't like, okay, they're sitting in our class and in a university setting and we can't make the assumption that they're coming with the, you know, the ex- same experiences that any other student has, right? I mean, right. so I think yeah, no. the, I- those assumptions are the things that cause us troubles, right? Cause us to, you know, and that's the, where, you know, that affective domain is going to really impact the student's ability to learn the concepts we're trying to teach. Yeah, Yeah. no, I agree. And I think, I mean, I I do think it's interesting to think about like how self-conscious or self-aware you have to be to engage in that. Right. So if you're really saying um, that this is happening all the time, which I think is right. um, It does make you have to think about how how do you deal with that? Right. Because, you know, the, there is a tension there because like one of the things I, I think I remember from the time when you were taking like the science teaching and learning class was like this term, the term epistemic or epistemological or oh, variations yeah. on that was a big thing. Right. And people trying to get their head around, like, what does it mean to talk about knowing in that way? Like uh, knowing as a system and, how is that? How do you think about that and talk about that? And I think one of the interesting things is uh, I, as a instructor uh, of that course, I don't think I was good at having 
have figuring out things that we could talk about that were about epistemology without using the term epistemology. And I think right. that's the hard thing, right? Like in science, we can say, okay, we're going to talk about, you know, the happy sad ball. We're going to drop these two things. They're going to bounce or not bounce. And then we're going to talk about it. And we don't have to talk about it in terms of energy. We're just going to talk about it. But like thinking about what the analogy is for that in terms of like talk, understanding epistemology or understanding communities of practice or understanding like, yeah. like how, what are, what are those things? And I think that's really hard to think about like, what's the thing when you're talking about something so abstract that there is no really physical manifestation of it. Like how, how do you, where's your starting point? And I think that's, that's the challenge that I think we could put to ourselves to really think about is like, what are the things that we can put out there for people to think about these hard concepts and talk through in their own language before we give them the technical language. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that would be really hard. I'm thinking about to some of the things we've talked about just in this episode, like, you know, the dichotomies, uh, dialectics, you know, mm-hmm. those are, that, that, I mean, that's a hard concept to, and there's a lot of them in teaching and learning, right? There's yeah. a lot of these interconnected, you know, concepts that are, you know, dialectics and, and, you know, it's almost that the, the word itself in, encompasses the concept. And, right. and I think that uh, that requires a, a, a level of intentionality that we're probably not accustomed to. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've seen it and I see it because I do teach this course pretty regularly, like the science teaching learning course. And I, and I'm hoping I'm getting better at it, but, I, but it is one of these things where, you know, every year I see the same struggles, right? I see people struggling with to understand like, well, what's really the difference between like a cognitive theory and a sociocultural theory and, right. and, and why, you know, they're, they're, and using the terms like this, I, I talk with my students all the time about this. Like if you're talking from a sociocultural perspective, you can't use terms like transfer and motivation. And because those, those terms, it's not that you can't, I guess, right. but those terms have technical meanings in a different, in a different frame of reference. Right. And when you do that, you're mixing mixing things, it's not so much because it's wrong in the world. It's because you're mixing things in your head. And so you're going to confuse them. You're not going to understand that transfer is a way of talking about what happens as people move from context to context from a cognitive point of view. And sociocultural theorists have a different way of thinking about what happens as people move from context to context, and they don't think about it as transfer. But but so much, just like with physics, so much of this language is in our colloquial speech now. Yeah. Like we talk about concepts all the time, but concepts have a have a, a technical meaning in addition to the to the more colloquial meaning, just like force does or energy or any of these other things. So it, it's a fascinating problem. Yeah. I, that you just exemplified some epistemological issues right there. The oh, cognitive. There you go. Look I, at you. Uh-huh. Just coming full circle to show yeah. you once again that I, you know. You can be esoteric when you want. I can be esoteric. I'm not going to make up an acronym for the uh, epistemology. Um, no, no, no. no. Stick with lid. Lid. No, that was yours. That was yours. <laughs> Mine was, was it, what was it? The, it wasn't hip. It was, what was it? We'll have to, have to go to back, back an episode. Two. Yeah. yeah. I so I, uh, I think that the, uh, coming back to the chapter, I think that uh, he provides some, some good uh applications for this. I think that for me, you know, in, in this in-between world we're working in, there's, there's some applications for considering, you know, the affective stuff that we're putting our students through right now Mm -hmm. and how we can do a better job 
of reducing some of the stress our students are experiencing. And I think we'll get better results from the cognitive end of things. And so I think that if you're out there teaching online or you're teaching remote or, um, you know, whatever in between type of teaching you're doing right now, um, remember that the affective stuff is important and that you can't just focus on the content that you're teaching without thinking about the affective stuff too. And that requires you to, you know, this, one of the big concepts right now is like social emotional learning. And so there's all these strategies out there. Um, I just uh, blogged about this, you know, recently um, about how you can incorporate more SEL stuff in your online classes. And maybe I'll put a link to that in, in the show notes. Um, but the, the idea is that you have to be really intentional about like attending to the affective domain and and it's not it's not a, a um, by doing that it's not sacrificing the cognitive it's mm-hmm. actually supporting the cognitive it's not like doing one over the other it's doing one so that you can get better at the other so the mm-hmm. students could get better at the other so it's not a sacrifice it's like a down payment it's like you're fertilizing the soil so the students can do better at learning and i think that's the way you have to frame it that's the way you have to see it because there's a payoff there's a payoff if you tend to the affective stuff then the cognitive stuff can happen. And, you know, that's the the big takeaway of this whole chapter. And from, from his perspective, it's like, we have to tend to the language and how we present the language and when we present the language, because that is the thing that impacts the affect of things for our students. You right. know? And I think one building on that, I mean, one of the ways that he really um, brings home the affective component or, or a part of how you can address that is, is not necessarily, I mean, I think there, there tends to be this sense of like, Oh, well, I have to ask kids how they feel or something. Right. It's not, it's no. not really about that, but it is about opening up possibilities for students to talk from their own understanding. Right. Like, and that is an affective support. Right. And, and the thing is that's good for, you know, as you're saying, like, it's not like this is a separate thing, like having kids talk from their own, experiences and using their own ideas isn't just good for affective supporting them. It's good for cognitively supporting them and socioculturally supporting them in all the ways that you're trying to get them to engage with each other and understand each other and goes all the way back to themes that we keep talking about. You know, teaching is a relational act, right? Yes. Teaching is about building relationships with kids and kids building relationships with each other. And it, and, and the more you're doing that, the better it is and the more it pays dividends. And I think one of the things to think about that is, is, um, you know, we, we talk about um, with, with the work that I've done with the park forest teachers here is, is this idea that, um, you know, it, it can be harder in the beginning. It can be more time consuming in the beginning, but what ends up happening later is that because kids understand things better and, and have a set of norms and communication patterns, they get really much better. And so by the end, by, by the second semester, deeper into the year, the kids are much more engaged and they're much more thoughtful and they understand how the class works and they are talking to each other in much more meaningful and powerful ways. And that improves everybody's learning. Now you have to do work in the beginning. If we had all our schools oriented this way and every teacher did it, then you wouldn't have to have that front end where you're building up kids to understand, yeah, I want you to talk and I want you to use your own language and all that stuff. Right now, we don't have that. So if you're doing it, it probably means you got to spend a bunch of time helping them understand it. 
So there's a lot there. A lot there. There's a lot there. Yeah. But I think that, you know, if, if you've been with us for a few episodes, then you're seeing that it, it all relates. It all, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a, definitely a current across all the class, all these episodes that we're talking, that you can see that we're, we're presenting a, a way of teaching, a, a way of teaching regardless of what, you know, format or context in which you're working, mm-hmm. that it all, it all connects. And yeah, and I think this book does a really good job of, you know, building on the stuff we're, we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So what brings you joy this week, Ollie? Well, that's, that's, that's great. That's a good transition, Scott. Um, so I, I'm going to pivot only because it's, it's been, uh, I had a, I had one joy, but since, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. about it b- before the show, I'm going to pivot. I will say that if you haven't caught uh, the Dairy Girls on, uh, on Netflix, do that. Go, go do this today go listen to the go watch the dairy girls stop so not, this stupid podcast stop, stop this podcast and do something that is going to bring you joy and it's uh so the dairy girls are uh four um girls that live in dairy in like their early nine, 90s 1990s and it is each episode is like 20 25 minutes and they are so funny and it's gonna you know if you're Somebody who was around in the early '90s. There's going to be lots of music that you're going to just appreciate. Um, you know, a lot of cranberries and and things. Um, but just the episodes are so funny, and I like I've watched this series. You know, I think it's in it. They have three seasons online. I think, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've watched all three seasons. You know, probably two or three times, and so it's just. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that, um, I would watch with kids because some of the language is, uh, and some of the situations are a little adult, but in the same sense, it is so funny and you have to check it out in each character in there is unique. And what's really interesting is that right before the holidays, Netflix released, um, a great British baking show with the characters. And so this is why, you know, I start, I watched the seasons again recently, um, but with, with the characters that, so they were the actors who were playing the different characters. And so the, the actors themselves were not, uh, you know, playing the roles they play on the show, but it was so wild how close they were to the actual characters. And so, which is great, you know, because, you know, they are very similar to the characters they play, which is is awesome. And so I go back and forth as to who one of my, uh, who my favorite, you know, Dairy Girl is, um, you know, it would be hard for me. You don't to, have to name one. It's okay. No, it's all right. You can, so, you can love them all. Just, I do. They're all funny. So we'll just, yeah. we'll do that. Yeah. So nice. the dairy, dairy girls, check it out. I, I, I will second that uh, recommendation. Um, so the thing that gave me joy a little bit this week that I had heard bef- about, but I had not tried um, is the Jackbox games. Um, so I just want to say like my, my research group this week, we decided we weren't going to do a real meeting. We were just going to do Jackbox games. So one of my students has the Jackbox games and, so I played uh, Trivia, Murder Party, and Quiplash. So I can recommend those two in particular. Um, but they they have like party packs of five or six games that you can buy. And they're all cross-platform. But basically they're games that are designed 
um, to be played over Zoom, right? So you, right. or something like that. So they're designed to be played remotely. They're a lot of fun. They're, you know, they're, they're stupid and goofy and all that stuff. But for a big group of people uh, that are distributed, um, it's a nice, it was nice fun and I really enjoyed it. And, um, and I think, you know, we're going to buy some and, and hopefully play them over the, over the holidays with my family. Cause we won't be all getting together, of course. So um, being able to do this, will be, it'll be fun. So I, I recommend, I, again, I can recommend those two for sure, but I think they're all um, probably good in their own way. Yeah. We, we've played a bunch of these. Um, so some of the other ones that uh, we enjoy, so the, 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 um, the one with the, uh, the monsters, uh, I'm trying to look up the names cause they are, uh, so we've, we've played uh quiplash. We've played drawful, um, which is, yeah. uh, which is great. Pictionary ish. Yeah. So the tri- trivia murder party is, yeah, one of the right. one of the yeah. best. Uh, yeah, there's one. Uh, what is it like? T-shirt ninja, or uh, it's it it involves writing t-shirt like drawings, making drawings, and then coming up with t-shirt like sayings, and then matching the two, and then you vote them up, and mm-hmm. uh, it is awesome. It is one of our all-time favorite ones. So uh, the t-shirt. Why I'm trying to look for the name, but I can't see. We'll, we'll put it. it in show notes. We'll figure it out and put it in yeah. show notes. Yeah, Jackpot games are but, great. It's yeah, and it looks like so we're going to be continue to do this stuff, this online distance, social distancing things for a, at least a, a few more months. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I remember playing You Don't Know Jack, which is the same company. Um, you know, back long time ago i don't know 10 15 years ago i don't remember how long ago that was but um with my with my family on both sides here um my family and my wife's family and having a good time so so these are all built on that sort of you know they're sort of goofy but they're really entertaining so so that's what's bringing me a little joy tko 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 t as in like t-shirts t and ko because it's a a, a battle like a slugfest got it tko okay I like All that. Right. Well, I want to mention one other thing because last week I mentioned that I was rereading the Isaac Asimov robot series. And I just want to mention, I got to the second book and one of the, I don't know how well you remember these, um, but this, the second book in the series, the the protagonists go off to this other world and on this other world, Solaria, everyone lives in a house and they never physically interact with each other, basically, except um, to create children. So it, it's this weird like world where you view people and science in between. I was like, oh my gosh, this yeah. is this. It's so prophetic that you know he was talking about nobody ever sees each other except over these imaging screens, things, yeah. and and here we are seeing each other over screens. So uh, so I thought that was. That's just a, a, a follow-up to last week's uh, things that bring me joy. I thought be interesting. Oh, that, that's, that's great, Scott. Thanks. Thanks, thanks. for sharing. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for telling me it's great. I appreciate <laughs> it. Great. it. I enjoyed uh, that, thanks. Scott. Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed that you enjoyed it. <laughs> well, uh, episode 21 uh, in the books. Go have yep. yourself an adult beverage to celebrate 20, 21, 21 episodes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you in next between. time. In between.